she literally just conjured, you know, there's doulas for birth. I wish there was something like that for me now with this death. And on a lark, I went home and typed in death doula and voila, it's a thing. <laughs> and <now laughs> it exists. It exists. I was it so kind of always has in exactly. one way or another. Yeah. So many people ask me about it that I've actually had to start being like, can you give me a couple of weeks before I write you back? I'm just going to start sending them this podcast interview. <laughs> I really am Please, because yes. this is probably everything I would end up telling them. It's annoying that we have to practice online because of COVID and we can't see each other, you know? Yeah, I know. That's great. Do you have feedback for me, Grandma? Keep it at the same time. Hello, fellowship sisters and siblings. Our Reverend Rachel here. Today I'm interviewing a new friend and kindred spirit, Carolyn Zykowski. While Carolyn makes a living as a writer and writing professor, she also has a take on dying as a trained death doula. Our conversation covers everything from why to become a death doula, how to become a death doula, and ways to find a death doula to assist with the tactical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of the end of your life or loved ones. She also shares her experience with death cafes and the insightful suggestion that death can be trusted. That was much better. Before I introduce you to my new friend, Carolyn, let me just recap why this monthly podcast exists. After accumulating 10 years and counting of elder care intel, I decided to create my irreverent empire of insights, anecdotes, and audio, all found on my website, thisisgettingold.com, just add some dashes, in order to support the undertakings of you, my fellow shit sisters and siblings. The purpose of my podcast is to provide empathy and education about the start, middle, and end of the elder care trenches. And to remind each other why we're all gathered here together, I start each episode with a grandma cameo. We haven't heard from grandma for two months now because she and her fellow rest home residents were on precautionary lockdown through another COVID winter. It's time for us to do a podcast recording. Hmm? Remember the podcast recordings we used to do before you were on lockdown, and now we haven't done one in two months? That's very cool. So what have you been up to? <laughs> Just doing the everyday. What is the everyday at 87 in a rest home? My schedules. <laughs> Go down to eat in the morning, and uh, this morning it was have a shower. Really? Yes. How often does that happen? Twice in the week. Mm-hmm. Then you go to breakfast. What time is that? Well, eight. You're taking your pills in between. You're sitting waiting for your pills. In a line with other old people? Yep. What yeah. do the pills do? They take you through the day. They keep so you alive. Keep you alive, exactly. Then you can go in and sit and have your breakfast. And then what? And then after your breakfast, you know what I do in the morning? I watch the Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Is this true confessions? Hmm? Since when have you ever watched the Golden Girls? I got into the habit of watching them one time because I thought they were good. And they're funny enough. So it's an okay way to start your day, you know. And then what happens after Golden Girls? After Golden Girls, I... Usually pick up a little. Yeah, right. Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean? Like, okay, every time I come into your room, it's trashed. There's gum stuck to your table. There's crumbs all in your drawers. What's picking up? Picking up is straightening up what you have on the desk. (laughs) Putting away your nighty. You gotta fold it up. I gotta fold the nighty. Stick it under the pillow. And. If she's there, my uh, shower person, she comes in and makes the bed. So then it's I, not you picking up. It's you watching uh, no, somebody I, else I, pick I, up for you. Then what happens after you pick up all your energy is spent picking up? Then what? What do you think? Lunch. <laughs> lunch and a nap. Nap and then lunch. No, I can't see the nap lately. Do you know there's one of the guys, he'll talk about his naps. <laughs> said, well, I got my two hours in this morning. I can't nap like that. What do you do? I just lie there and think about why I can't nap. <laughs> but I do lie down for a little while. And then is it lunchtime? Yeah, it's about lunchtime. What time is lunchtime? 
Ah, uh, well, usually a little after 11 because we serve salad at 11.30. Then at noon, the meal comes, which is the big meal of the day rather than the evening meal. And after that huge meal, do you nap then? No. <laughs> I was. I don't know what I'm doing after. Do you read? Yep. What are you reading? Well, I read some of, what was the one you gave me on the park? And I went back to pick up some of the biographies I was reading. One on the Adams, John Adams and Abigail. Did you know them? I didn't know them personally, but I know <laughs> of them. And then is it dinner time? <laughs> Not quite. Oh, dinner's earlier usually. They expect us to be down there between 4 and 4.30. Then what I do at night is I watch the news. About 8 o'clock mm -hmm. with MSNBC, and I watch pretty much through to 11 o'clock. So I've noticed, Mother, since you have broken out of COVID jail, I have brought you back to your rest home two times, and for the first time ever... When it's not been that late in the evening, you have asked me to help you get ready for bed before I leave. And one of those times, it was like 7 o'clock at night. So what's that about? Well, usually at that time, when she's here, my shower You person. have never, ever asked me to do that for you before. I know. Even when I bring you home at 10 o'clock at night, because that's your curfew. I know. Why are you asking for it now? Because that's what she does. Why are you asking me to do it now? I don't know. Are you getting old and nervous and <laughs> tired? Yeah. Well, I think because I've gotten used to her doing it when she's there. And I think, oh, this is kind of comfortable. Makes me feel sleepy ready for bed. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm treating you like an infant to get you cozy before bed. Right. I do that. To get you some hot cocoa. Exactly. Do you want to tell everybody about your eye appointment? Last week? Oh, uh, no. We don't want to hear about the eye appointment. Why don't we want to hear about the eye appointment? Because. <laughs> What's the moral of the story? What's the plan going forward? When I bring you to appointments, what's your job? My job is to answer what they say. Ask. To participate in your life and your medical care. Yeah. Do I have any interest in making appointments for you that you complain about? I didn't complain. Yeah, you did. Do I have any interest in bringing you to appointments that you don't engage in fully? Do I have any interest in getting you more specialists to give you more pills to just prolong your life no. as you watch the Golden Girls and not nap and go to <laughs> 5 o'clock dinners? How often are we going to the doctor, a specialist? I think we're going too often. How often are we going? It's a question. Once a week. We're going to a pulmonologist, an oncologist, an eyeologist once a week. How do you feel about that? I mean, I would like to keep track of the cancer, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and the heart, maybe. And what about the lungs? Well, I don't see why. <laughs> I think have. you need those two. Pretty much the cancer, the heart, and the lungs. I think that's like the lions and tigers and bears of right. being alive. But it just seems like, why do I have to have all these many? You don't have to. You can I know, stop going. I know. I what if you just stop going and stop taking the pills? Then what? Well, I'll drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> you might suffer a little bit. Right? Might a little bit. <laughs> no, it's just the medical community. This is the way they operate. Exactly. Meanwhile, you have a curfew. So what do you want to tell everybody? <laughs> cold. It's cold? <laughs> At the moment. She's giving up because we're sitting in a cold car. So you work, you work very hard, Rachel. And I don't see what we got to do. So many. I know it's part of the medical thing and it's important, but I know it can be hard on you with the, all you got to do. And here I am. How old am I? 87. 87. Is it worth uh, it? Hmm? What's the cost-benefit analysis? What's the return on investment? What do we get from having Grandma alive longer? <laughs> I know. What, what do you get? <laughs> exactly. And now it's time to return to our regularly scheduled broadcasting, which will prove that once again my Luddite tendencies kicked in and I used the wrong mic when I was recording, so I sound like I am in a tin can. I apologize profusely to my listeners, the audio gods, and my production partner, and promise to get it right the rest of the year. 
feels apropos to plant an Easter egg from Ghostbusters Afterlife here and say, perhaps my podcast will really find its voice in the 46th episode. Happily, my guest sounds just great. Today, I am speaking with a newly formed friend, Carolyn Zykowski. And I'm going to start off this podcast by explaining a little bit about how Carolyn and I got connected because this is the first time we're connected. So it'll be fun for us to get to know each other on this podcast. In my life, there is a wonderful human who goes by the name Cousin Pete in our house. And Cousin Pete knows of my, I guess my death obsession is the right way to say it. And he kindly put his finger on the pulse of the moment I'm in with my podcast and my conversations and the guests that I'm seeking. And he said, hey, I know somebody who is a death doula. Would you want to speak with her? And what Cousin Pete didn't know at the time was that I had just signed myself up for the University of Vermont's, what do they call it, elder, something more sophisticated, but basically the death doula course for pets and people. And I said, yeah. So Carolyn, you've been very, very patient. I think this was about six months ago. And he told you about me and told me about you. And then I did my whole, like, I have a whole nother life and it's the holidays and I'm overwhelmed. And then I reached out to you a couple of weeks ago and said, would you be my first guest of 2022? And you very kindly said, Yes. Said, Yay! <laughs> Woohoo! A kindred spirit. Kindred I don't spirit. Find death doula kindred spirits very often <laughs> in my real life. So right. So mm-hmm. I think we should geek out together as new okay. found death doula kindred spirits, and mm-hmm. we can help the rest of the free world <laughs> understand why <laughs> this is a big thing. But let's start with the fact that very often I'm sensing that people like us, we know that death doula ing not pay the bills so we have this other, <laughs> other life that we live so I would like as people creative to, writers as, which is great yeah also reams of money. you know that pays a lot of bills <laughs> she says while sipping her sophisticated wine exactly <laughs> so carolyn please tell people about when you are not a death doula who are you what are you and what would you want people to know about you Thanks. Well, hello, everybody. My regular life, so to speak, (laughs) is mostly that I'm a writer and a writing teacher who just happens to have a fascination with death and death work. I write and publish in, in all genres, really poetry, long and short fiction, creative nonfiction, um, hybrid. I'm, I'm really interested in hybrid kind of experimental methods as well that sort of mfa training was was at the weird freaky experimental hybrid mfa program tell me i have a a dorky very staid typical non-fiction undergrad degree so explain to me and others what does the hybrid thing mean sounds very well i went to naropa university for my um, master's program in writing Mm -hmm. and the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. They're the freaky MFA program. They were um, <laughs> founded by Allen Ginsberg and the um, beat poet lineage alongside the Shambhala Tibetan Buddhist tradition. They're one of the only, if not the only, Buddhist okay. colleges in the country. So when I say hybrid and experimental, I really just mean exploring where genre breaks down. I really like the middle ground between poetry and fiction and nonfiction and the, seeing it as a spectrum. Not so dissimilar to how um, people might be talking now about the construct that is gender. My kind of background in writing is pretty Buddhist inspired. I just realized that I missed the news of Thich Nhat Hanh's death a couple days ago. So I know. Oh my goodness. I know. He's a real, he's a hero. Yeah. I was in school in Vermont and he came to talk and it was the first time I understood what a presence like that was. So if you picture a football size auditorium, thousands of people, standing room only, and the level of presence and silence he created in that crowd who just wanted to be in that space with him was one of the most profound things I've ever experience. Everybody I know who's ever been in his presence has said that I was never lucky enough to meet him. 
I was too novice to really understand what I was experiencing. To, to say that I met him in that sense was so overstated. And yet you felt like you did, right? I'm on the yeah, other yeah. side of an auditorium. Well, like, side, because but... he was, you're meeting yourself when you meet him. That's the whole point of him, right? Well and said. of Buddhism. Yeah. He was a master of the concept of no self and, mm-hmm. and that we're all just pieces of each other um, interacting. The way that concept was explained to me, and it's not like I embody it or entirely understand it, but (laughs) that we are all made out of non-us parts. Like I'm Mm. all made out of non-Carolyn parts and you're all Mm -hmm. made out of non-Rachel parts. This is not unrelated to why I'm interested in death, obviously, which we'll talk about. We'll segue (laughs) easily into. There's a piece on my site and I'm I'm embarrassed. I'm forgetting who did it. You need a physicist at your funeral. It was an interview. I know it. Yeah, I know it. That just like smacked me upside the head. It's true. Yeah, it's all true. We're all just law of thermodynamics and Buddhists (laughs) just kind of talked about that in in their own way a long time ago. So let's, let's bring it full circle back to your writing. I know you have a website. I've seen some of your pieces of your work, but what would you want people to know about Cher now that you've taught us about this concept? (laughs) Well, yeah, you can you can see more and read examples and things like that of um, my writing at uh, com. I do have a book. Well, I actually have two books, but one of them is out of print. But the one that is in print is a pretty good example of some of the wacky hybrid concepts I was talking about. It's called um, In a Dream, I Dance by Myself and I Collapse. And you can find it at the accomplices.org. The press is called Civil Coping Mechanisms, but... You can find that all at my website if you're interested in buying the book and supporting a small press and a weird indie author. (laughs) (laughs) I teach writing at the college level. I'm technically a writing professor. And I also teach at a number of community organizations like Pioneer Valley Writers Workshop is a great organization that I work Mm -hmm. at. And I do writing consulting and, and things like that. Let me tell you how I found death dualism, and then I would love to hear your own story. I think it's interesting for people to hear how somebody might go into this. And then just to remind us, I'm writing and talking about elder care, but really it's the caregivers and often the adult children who is my audience. So I just think it's a wonderful uh, resource for people to be aware of. It's, it's, It's actually omnipresent these days, right? New Yorker and New York Times and everybody's talking about it. I know it's amazing. So many more people want to be a death doula than hire death doulas. Well, exactly. Which is kind of maybe a (laughs) side topic. So so here's our PSA. Don't become a death doula because you think it's going to be a career. (laughs) A couple of years ago when I was noodling this concept, having a platform, if you will, I was walking the beach on my annual summer vacation with a mom I've become close with whose own mother had just died tragically. And she was just devastated. And so she literally just conjured, you know, there's doulas for birth. I wish there was something like that for me now with this death. And on a lark, I went home and typed in death doula and voila, it's a thing. <laughs> and <now laughs> it exists. It exists. I was it so kind of always has in exactly. one way or another. Yeah. It is now such a big thing that not only are there many, many, many really powerful people who are offering training. I just happened to orient to uh, UVM because I got my undergrad in Vermont as well. I knew of it a couple of years ago and I could have signed up for that next course, like within a matter of a month. I went to sign up for it this summer and I had to wait to start until March is how popular it's become. Right? I believe it. I think that's even in just the past couple of years, because I did mm-hmm. the one in early 2020 and there wasn't a waiting list or anything like you're describing. Right? It really is quite something. So many people ask me about it that I've actually had to start being like, can you give me a couple of weeks before I write you back? I'm just going to start sending them this podcast interview. <laughs> I really am Please, because yes. this is probably everything I would end up telling them. It's fascinating to think that we could have ended up in the same class. So <laughs> how did you learn about it? How did you learn of the fact of the Destula training and what made you sign up in that moment? Gosh, there's so many ways to answer the whole, how did you become interested in being a death doula question? I think the first part of my answer would probably be something that a lot of death doula-ish people would relate to, which is I've always been the person who wanted to talk about 
what no one else would talk about. Mm. I'm the like endearing dark horse of my family. I'm trying to be in practice being nice to myself. So I'm like, well, maybe they think it's endearing, but they probably don't. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, oh, Carolyn, she's so wacky, you know, that kind of person. But, well, um, but your hair you know, is, just for the listening audience, your hair is not dyed black. You're wearing color. So it's not like you're that guy. It used know? to be. Okay. All right. Maybe when you're a recovering emo. My 20. I'm still emo. I'm not recovered. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I've always been the person who I sort of feel like I'm, did I come to earth by accident? Do I have like oh. a foot in another like realm? Because I feel like nobody gave me a playbook. There's just things that like, but wait, everyone dies though. Wow. It's the, the only thing that happens to everybody, but nobody will talk about it. Pair that with that. I did have a lot of experiences of loss mm. as a teenager and in, in my twenties, I had a lot of mm. um, young friends who died. There was a lot of death. There were some tragedies, a number mm-hmm. of very young people who took their own lives. And then growing up at the beginning of the opioid epidemic and yeah, I, wow. a lot of young people I've known who have died. It just happened that way. Without taking anything away from or minimizing it, I can relate in the sense that the reason I became obsessed with elder care is because mm-hmm. we had more than the inordinate amount of elder deaths back to back to back to back uh, to back and more than the inordinate amount of elders. Yeah. Asterisks. Yeah. It's not tragedy, right? So I'm very cynical and flip and goofy about it because these people yeah. all live good long lives. There is a part of me that as a coping mechanism was trying to intellectually master death. But turns out that doesn't work. <laughs> I hate when that happens. You can't, <laughs> you know, regardless, <laughs> a few years ago, I started embracing it. Everyone has to be good at something and I'm apparently good at death. And so I thought someone, someone has to be good at this. I'll just do it. I'll embrace it. And so here we are. I started doing trainings. I did a proper mm-hmm. hospice volunteer mm-hmm. training um, yep. certificate. And then I did a training in a program called No One Dies Alone. Then I did the UVM certificate. Okay. And I continue to seek out opportunities. And what does that do for you and others? Sorry to interrupt. Not that you have to expressly detail each type of program and their samenesses or differences, but if we're educating people about the fact of these things, the offerings that they themselves or their elders could take advantage of, what would you want people to know about those programs you've experienced or what somebody like you would be bringing to them? Well, The UVM program, I chose specifically because it's associated with a medical school. It's actually Mm -hmm. one of the big reasons I chose that program. And in that program, you learn a lot of of kind of emotional skills, for lack of a better way to say it. A lot of things about studying kind of the social, psychosocial, medical, cultural aspects Mm-hmm. of end of life and grief. I plowed through the uh, founders, her little book, Cultivating the Doula Heart, I think it's called. Yeah. Right? Having my clinical training behind me, I just really appreciated that it reminded me that if I'm, I'm going to seriously apply any of these skills, you're really just being with people yeah. and giving space yeah. to needs and empowering them. Yeah. And even just giving space, it overlaps a lot with understandings I have about Buddhism and the Dharma because There's like an interrogation of the concept of self that you have to do. To sit with a dying person, everything else has to fall away. They are the only phenomenon that matters in that moment. The first time I ever sat proper vigil with a dying person, and that was before I did the doula training, I came away feeling like I had gone on a meditation retreat. I either had to, or I just organically like put put my own stuff in my own dumb little mind and little human personality aside. It was really, really something. There's something about being with death. I wish everybody could be with a dying person, that this was just some kind of like requirement. (laughs) I'll Um, join you in that sense. What you're reminding me of, and I don't conjure this thought much, is me being in Boston at home and having regular phone contact with my husband who by this definition was sitting vigil with his dad who had been diagnosed with esophageal cancer and basically given two weeks to live. So my husband and his brother and and a nephew swooped in to be physically present over uh, that time to get those 3am calls, to talk to my husband, to hear 
the tone in his voice, the level of volume he was talking, what the vibe in the home was, is exactly what you're describing. And it was intense, especially when you don't plan for it, when you're not a doula, when you don't sit around saying, I'm going to do home hospice with my parents someday. It's rattling. But it really was a beautiful experience that we conjure often and say, you know what, I'd like to go like that, surrounded by my loved ones, peacefully at home. I have a a lot of thoughts about how, um, like the social justice and privilege aspect, like Hmm. the privilege of never having seen a death or a dead body until we're older. I have friends in their 50s who've never even had a friend die or the Mm -hmm. only person that ever died that they knew was a very, very, very old person. I think we really need to interrogate this. I say we as in you and I and white folks and folks who have certain types of privilege. Most of the world, people die young and Mm -hmm. or in war zones or Mm -hmm. because they don't have vaccines or because they don't have healthcare. I mean, that, that includes this country too. Most of the world knows all about death. Mm -hmm. It is in the white Western world where we don't have exposure to death. I'm realizing in some ways, that's exactly what my offering is born out of. Hey, all of you people who have never had to deal with anything like this before, it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's two groups of people in the Mm -hmm. world. There's people who've realized the nature of the body and people who Mm -hmm. haven't, I know 70 year olds who don't get it. And Mm -hmm. I just want to be like, oh, honey, oh my God. (laughs) Like you still believe in Santa. Like, (laughs) oh my God, this is going to suck so much for you. So let's tell the other side of the coin. So you just help us understand and anybody that just came to our podcast because Caroline got your email and she sent you here. So, you know, (laughs) so you've gone to the program, you've gone through other programs. We won't go to the cynical side of like, nobody's actually choosing to call up death doulas and pay them to do this stuff. But if they were, (laughs) if they hear this and say, my God, that sounds Mm -hmm. beautiful Mm -hmm. and amazing. And I want it for myself or I want it for my parent. How do you find the Carolines of the world and what offerings <laughs> do they do they provide when you find them? Yeah, yeah, totally. Luckily, people are starting to realize what death doulas are and why to hire one. I think a lot of people's hope would be at some point this would actually be covered by insurance. So for me, I think it's important to mention that there is no um, standardized definition of a death doula. It's not a regulated field. So if someone does tell you that there's a definite hardcore way to define or explain it, to hold hold that a little loosely. Yeah, (laughs) it is an up and coming field in that sense of having been rediscovered, even though death doulas have been in one way or another around for probably all of time. But in the sense of modern Western the ways we've been talking about death and birth doulas in the past like few decades, that conversation started happening at the same time. During okay. social movements in the 60s and 70s, they mm-hmm. started reclaiming the ancient roots of birth and death work. One of the points of these movements is that people used to die at home. Right. People used to have home births. There's a right. ton of connections between these two movements. That's a really important conversation. What does it mean to regulate something that's mm-hmm. ancient and taking into account the history of regulating types of things like this? And then on the other hand, there's just so many damn ethics that you have to consider right. when you are doing this. This is really high stakes. Death work is high stakes. You can fuck somebody's entire life up. And by, you're not, like, not to be, not to be <laughs> flip about it. You are talking both about the person who is dying and presumably yeah. everybody left behind too. Both. Yeah, totally. So there's a lot of ethics around it. People who haven't really had any lived experience in a hospice program or something saying that they're starting a business. I'm like, exactly. oh my God, can you imagine if somebody right. was a therapist who had never even been in the same room as a, and, as a mentally by- ill person? They, well, precisely. And by the same token, yeah. anybody who says, I'm going to help you birth your child and have, has never had done oh anything Oh my God. Right? If you, yeah. if you tell somebody so that even, that, in that sense, right? Yeah. I feel like you can wrap yes. your head around what experience yes. might yes. they not give you at the would other you let Would you let someone drive your car? Like mm-hmm. even who's never been in a car. On the other side of it though, on the third or fourth hand, there's people who are hospice workers or chaplains, people who have so much experience Mm -hmm. that I'm like, you're a death doula. You might as well be a death doula. And And they don't have a certification. Exactly. One of the distinctions I'm noticing that it's probably coming up around death doula-ing. And you said it right up front yourself. You said you're 
sitting vigil with people in the context of a program, which is different than what a lot of people are, are choosing to do, trying to do some of these programs are suggesting they're helping them become, which is a full service yeah. to doula, right? Yeah, it's, you know, sure. You have received a diagnosis. I will start sitting with you. I'll find out your wishes. It's things like writing your story, taking your pictures, all the way through to sitting through the moment itself, the aftermath, the funeral, supporting your family. That's a business. Right? And I think that right now, the current moment, that's what a lot of people, when they say I'm a death doula, that's what they Yeah. Mean. What yeah. I appreciate about your experience is it seems like there's different niche work where you can find They're somebody totally like nice. you who has just chosen in the right way, ethically to become a very experienced person. To me, it all boils down to what is the experience of the dying person themselves yeah. and by extension, hopefully their loved ones around them. That to me is the core. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Back to what I think was your original question, like a bunch of minutes ago before we kept getting like excited about all the other stuff. <laughs> Wormholes. Um, what even is a death doula and how do different people navigate being one? Why would a person want or a family want to work with a, a doula? What are the different things they can do? And what you were saying about different skill sets or kind of angles, I think is a real thing. And, and also how you were adding on like the importance of researching the particular doula mm. and what their particular offering is as a human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's so interesting, even within doula businesses, a real official doula practice. Um, it's so it's so cool to see all of the different skills and personalities in the UVM program that I was in. There were anything from just people who do have a medical background to people who have a legal background. One that's of the most fascinating examples, she was an MBA. She was a CEO personality. The way that she became a doula, she was their boss at some corporation. Mm-hmm asked her, will you just manage my death process? I have a huge family. There's so many tasks at the end of life. It was this whole really cool, like a case management business personality. I'm good at delegating this and that. Practically, like, so there's that sounds a lot like, like how my approach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's real. The end of life and post death, the, mm-hmm. the logistics are bonkers. So there's a taskmaster organization for the family. There's people who slant on the side of funeral planning or facilitating the death and vigil and process. Mm-hmm. So there's people, you know, I don't, I don't want to say wedding planner personality, <laughs> but there's people who like, yeah. um, it's a niche or education. Focus, yeah. Oh, it totally yeah. is. All mm-hmm. kinds of therapists. Then you got people like me who are really more on the kind of more emotional and spiritual mm-hmm. side. I'm much better at walking beside accompanying. It's fascinating. I, I, I think you and I are kindred spirits and that we would have our vision of what a death doula should be for people mm-hmm. and the experience they should have. But at the end of the day, the dying people are all different yeah. and there might be some yeah. who are soothed by the tasks being taken care of. There might be some who are soothed by, you know, just help me finish my paperwork and then I'll die exactly. alone, whatever that case might be. Um, exactly. And again, you're making me sort of have reflections on my experience that I really did back into this moment because above and beyond all the deaths and the emotions and the tactical management and the cleaning the apartments and la 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 I basically had to manage uh, an estate for three years because of all these lawsuits that stemmed out of it. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just the paperwork and the process for a childless couple. It was all the bull that can happen when things go really wrong. <laughs> so even though I have my clinical degree behind me, I'm a natural helper in the way that that doula book actually warns against. I like to fix things. I like to clean up messes. So when I'm in a clinical space, I actually have to work really hard to just give that space you described and be there for people. So I know this is me sort of backing back into that space. I'm really good at the tactical. I can manage the shit out of death. And this came up when my uncle's wife, my uncle was failing of Alzheimer's quickly, which doesn't happen. We all realized he'd been hiding it for years. And I ended up being an emotional support for her in a way that made me realize that's the other side. I think that's what sort of woke up my awareness and interest in the death dueling piece of it. Just being there for her in every sense, being a a sounding board. I had something to offer her in her moment that was valuable for me to offer and valuable for her to have. 
And that to me is what I feel like the death doula, um, the way you describe it really in encompass, not the tactical, not the paperwork, not the planning. Yeah. Well, that's the good side of the fact that people are getting so into death doula work and Mm -hmm. as there's been this explosion and cultural consciousness around it. And I hope Mm -hmm. that that will lead to just lots of different styles of death doulas being available and families being able to have some kind of way to search and have a number of options. Yeah, that's really great. My hope is that hospices and hospitals Mm -hmm. will start hiring death doulas, even Mm -hmm. if part-time or per diem, that is starting to happen. So it's not all just private practice. If there had to be a basic definition, there's essentially a non-medical professional who assists in the practical or emotional or spiritual aspects of end of life, filling in a lot of gaps in this super fragmented medical system. I I think it would be the coolest thing if hospitals and hospices all just had a resident death doula or per diem Mm, person. Yeah. All right. Well, call me when you make that happen, you know, I'll ride your coattails. I do have a working contract for if I do decide that it's a good situation to take a family on. And mm-hmm. I would definitely do like an hourly sliding scale. People are free to get in touch with me via my okay. website contact form. I'm in Western Massachusetts. Okay. So, so is that um, but is appropriate to say that anywhere in Massachusetts sure. you would serve people in um, Western Massachusetts? Yeah. Yeah. It depends on the situation. There's some very cool stuff people are doing over Zoom now too. Oh, wow. Or even just consulting. Yeah. During the pandemic, one thing we did at one of my hospices was we did phone calls and Zoom and we just sat outside people's windows. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We sat and read read to people outside their windows (gasps) or or people play music for people like outside their windows and stuff. Is amazing because my uncle that I referenced, my poor cousin, cousin Patrick instead of cousin Pete, he flew from Seattle thinking he would get to see his dad one last time. And because of COVID, he had to see him through a window. And that, of course, was a negative experience. But the fact that you guys turned that to a positive is really cool. Yeah, death doulas and hospice workers have been doing some very beautiful things during the Mm. pandemic. Very cool. So that's, you know consulting over zoom and things i'm willing to do that in certain circumstances that's that's huge i personally would love to have you talk about because i know you have experience with it is death cafes so yeah let's let's back out of it this way once i realized i was a curator and i started just banging around on the internet and all things death i feel like i've boiled the ocean now there's not many things that that are new to me right that i'm like oh i've never heard of this before But there's a lot of things that I only have a surface level understanding of. And death cafes are one of them. Uh, I was super bummed that you were running one in the fall and I couldn't make it work. So let's start with, generally speaking, what are they? It's intimidating to think about jumping into who are these people? Why are they gathering? (laughs) What are they going to say? What am I going to have to say? That's fascinating because I feel like you would be so good at facilitating a death cafe. Well, I really appreciate you saying that because my acupuncturist, she's like, we should do a death cafe. So you really should. You're just a good facilitator. I could just really see you getting into it. Okay. I have so much to say about this. (laughs) I'll I'll talk about what a death cafe actually is. And then I'll tell you about just the larger issue of death education Mm -hmm. and the things that come up. So first of all, a death cafe is really cool in that it is a decentralized movement. Anybody can run a death cafe. So You don't have to be any kind of specialist. You just have to follow a few um, bullet point guidelines that you can find on the Death Cafe website, and then you can call it a Death Cafe. And a Death Cafe is is just meant to raise consciousness around death, just get people used to talking about it, to normalize conversations around death. And I love that it's called a Death Cafe because the cafe element, you have to like drink tea and eat snacks. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It adds this really normalizing and even lighthearted piece to it. But I just think it's great. Those are the two things I love the most, normalizing and lighthearted. (laughs) Yeah, and snacks. Like, (laughs) how can you go wrong? So (laughs) it's very specifically open-ended. The facilitator is not a leader, an expert. They're just the one who put the thing together. And there's no guided theme. There are a lot of really cool death cafes. There's a queer death cafe. You could do like Mm. a POC death cafe or whatever. But other than that, you know, it's not a book group. It's not anything like that. It's just, here's an open-ended question. Why did you come here today? (laughs) The stuff that happens from there is just awesome. 
Really? I do these writing about death classes now too, in a similar spirit. And so many people, if you give people the opportunity and the forum and the invitation mm-hmm. to talk about death, oh my God, the amount of people who show up, people oh, wow. want to talk about this. That's the so first cool. death cafe I ran was through one of my hospice um, volunteer programs. Mm-hmm. Granted, we did have a bunch of networks because of mm-hmm. that, but it was on a Thursday night in February, there was an ice storm. It's in a weird location off a highway. 50 people came, including wow. a bunch of old people. There were people from out of state came. And it's Holy not cow. just quirky, weird people like me and you. It's like <laughs> there were people want to talk about death and the things that come up once you give the space. A lot of it is stuff we've talked about here already that I won't reiterate, but gosh, Jessica Mitford wrote this book called The American Way of Death, which is like this scathing critique of the Mm -hmm. funeral industry. Caitlin Doty totally quotes that book and smoke gets in your eyes. Yeah. It's a famous book. Like uh, I think she's doing the modern breakdown. It's not a perfect book. Um, Mm -hmm. by any means. This incredible organization called the Collective for Radical Death Studies Mm -hmm. has done some very interesting, like updating the analysis of of that famous book. But but yeah, oh my God, there's things people don't know. Every or almost every state, it's legal to transport your your loved one's body in your own car. Every state, home funerals are legal. You are allowed to keep your loved one's body. There is no requirement for embalming. Embalming is this like very uniquely horrendous American things. And I think what Caitlin Doty was pointing out in some of her anecdotes was that people don't know that. And even when you know the facts and you state them to the authorities or other entities, they tell you, you cannot do it. There are a lot of really amazing funeral directors because mm-hmm. a lot of them are just beautiful people and that's why they want to do it. But the funeral industry is an industrial complex and they have a lobby. They get away with not telling mm-hmm. you certain things. I've seen Poverty ridden families, inner city families who spend their dead loved one's entire insurance policy on the wow. funeral. Oh my People who had been fired from their jobs because they didn't have any time left off to take care of their loved one and they were like on unemployment and they mm-hmm. spent. $10,000 on a casket. Is this the type of conversations you find people bringing up in the death cafes? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. People want to know. They want to know what their options are. Mm. They have their own story, horror stories and curiosities. Um, green funerals is obviously mm-hmm. a whole other issue that mm-hmm. and cool thing that people are finally starting to talk about. The end of life paperwork stuff. This is something I feel like I really need to talk about mm-hmm. with people. Mm-hmm. Wills and advanced directives are not just for the rich and the old. In one of my hospice trainings, we talked about the idea of like, we have health class in high school, mm-hmm. like just so have a, have a death class, yeah, a death can. education. We should be doing yeah. legal paperwork when we turn 18. It not only sucks for your loved ones, but there's things people don't think about. Even if you have a life partner and you're not married and haven't done the paperwork, mm-hmm. guess who is going to have the legal rights to your car? Your pets. If you have a shitty ex or an estranged parent, your pets are literally going to be their property. Those people are literally going to get your little paltry $2,000 adjunct professor savings account. (laughs) And like, you're not talking about anybody specifically. No, no, not at all. (laughs) Your crappy ex-husband being your healthcare proxy and you never changed the paperwork. These are really- the parts that I sadly know very, very well. And I got codified who our deaf dog would go to because not exactly. many people want a deaf dog. And to this day, that same friend, she's got two you know, boisterous boxer dogs and we love boxer dogs. And not many people, quite frankly, can handle them. So every time she flies, her family's in Hawaii. Every time she flies, she texts me and she's like, you get them if the plane goes down. <laughs> I literally have a friend who I have an arrangement with where I was like, if I die, if at all mm-hmm. possible, Will you be the one to come to my house and hide my sex toys so that like <laughs> my mother doesn't find them? I will absolutely reinforce, even though mine is an elder care focus. If, if when everybody starts believing that elder means 80 plus, you're screwed because that yeah. is not the truth of it. And, or by the way, their cognition is gone by then. Exactly. Or if you're not planning for this stuff before your middle age, to your point, it's a problem. Bring me back to the death cafe. You've described what sort of facilitator that could be. You've described that there can be Zoom types that people all over the world can come. You've inspired me. I'll definitely pursue doing my own. Why would people want to go to one? Who is it for? I think it's for everybody. I, I don't know how to say who it's for other than that. Anybody people, who's alive. 
right? People, anyone who's alive, <laughs> everybody wants to talk about death. So if you are alive is, and if you're going to die someday, you would enjoy a death cafe. Yeah. It's actually can get weirdly lighthearted. So I like that. Death is That's the only great. thing that happens to all of us. It is in an ultimate sense, like birth is a safe process. You know, again, both and it's also heartbreaking. It's horrendous. It's terrifying. It's difficult. Grief mm-hmm. is the worst thing I've ever personally felt. Mm-hmm. But death itself, I think, I think we can trust it. I think we can trust it in the most ultimate, huge sense, the way we can with birth. Like, I really, really feel that way. Having seen a number of deaths with my own eyeballs and having um, witnessed the larger process. That's a beautiful note to end on. So without getting explicit, without telling people's personal stories, what would you offer? Not even just about your experience sitting with somebody, but what can you tell us all? that we can expect in a good way out of death, given what you've said. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I'm going to say, I don't know because I've never died. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know that having witnessed deaths and so many dying processes and having sat with probably 50 actively dying people mm. And having done my own explorations in the nature of the self, I think something is going on in terms of death not being a problem in the largest sense. But I, I'm not going to act like I understand it. The humility it comes along with being a death. But like I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like and that's I'm probably, actually a really good point. I'd have to correct myself. Yeah. And I guess what I realize the only thing I can ask, and I, I mean to ask, is. I'm realizing that I think most of us, more than death, fear dying. Exactly. So, yeah, I think What's that's... your experience of dying? Is it as bad as our worst nightmares? <laughs> you know, again, it's just so hard to say. I don't know what people's subjective inner experiences mm-hmm. are of this mm-hmm. process. When it comes to end of life, like somebody knows they're dying and there's an end of life mm-hmm. process as opposed to a random violent accident. Mm-hmm. There is a process, like it's relatively predictable in the sense that birth is, there are things that happen that are, they happen differently for everybody, but there is a basic kind of active dying process that happens. And experts seem to say that it's not painful. And there's a lot of research done, a lot of like really like actual scientific research done on end of life experiences that appear to be very comforting to most people. But, you know, I don't know. I'm going to stay humble on this one. I, (laughs) you're good. You're good. I don't know. And I I can study death all the I want. And Buddhist people can talk big game about their practices with death, but I don't actually believe that anybody knows what it's going to be like until it happens. I do believe that there's a difference between death and dying though. And I have to believe that actual death can't be so bad. <laughs> Carolyn says so. We heard it. Damn it. <laughs> well, we'll end on this note on my bedside table. My child the other day was like, How many books do you read at once? I literally usually have like five to 10 that I'm browsing. Of course. And I don't know if you're a fan of Mary Roach, who wrote Stiff, oh, yeah. which of course oh, yeah. is hilarious <laughs> of for course. some of us. And now I'm reading Spook where she studies nice. I didn't realize she'd read it or she'd written it where she's studying that fact what nice. what is it what happens and so I just got to the 21 grams part where everybody's Beautiful. trying to prove that there's this little tiny piece that represents the aliveness and you can mm. measure it which I find fascinating I mean I just think for me all I can come to is just being willing to sit with the uncertainty and mm. that's a whole practice that I just think we just don't know mm-hmm and that drives us to act in a lot of ways that aren't so great. And if maybe if we can practice sitting with the uncertainty, something really um, emotionally or even politically revolutionary will open up. If we stop trying to figure it all out, I don't know. That's my inkling <laughs> is that that practice is in the uncertainty. Well, Carolyn, 
clearly there are <laughs> 50 people out there who no longer exist in the way us alive people think about it who are very lucky I'm that you sure. are their death doula oh so. gosh <laughs> yeah and we would all be so oh lucky God. to have somebody like you at our bedside for that moment. oh that's so. a, that's a really sweet thing thank you <laughs> oh my goodness this is an absolute one of the most delightful powerful conversations i've oh, had wow. so Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much for doing this, for raising this consciousness. It's so cool. It's a pleasure. People like you make it easy for me. I don't even know what consciousness I'm trying to raise until I talk to you. And then I'm like, oh, this stuff is good. <laughs> well, keep, keep doing it. And, and you'd be such a great Jeff Cafe facilitator. Like, I feel awesome. like I need to push that. Oh, please do. <laughs> Maybe we can do like a group panel thing. That would be we should fun. do one together. It would be awesome. I would totally <gasps> love to do that. Let's yeah. do that. Grandma, do you want to play that one? Okay. Follow my monthly podcast for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your irreverent radio. In between, you can find support, education, and hundreds of resources on my website, thisisgettingold.com. Just add some dashes. Sign up for my newsletter to receive my latest insights, anecdotes, audio, and ever-growing list of shit. Performing my new theme music, ironically titled Farewell, is my mom and my son. My production partner is Michelle Rado of Flying Pig Audio, and I am Irreverent Rachel, leaving you with some silly outtakes and some recommended websites in the episode notes. Now, go embrace your own irreverence. Hi, piggy. Oh, good job, Grandma. Let's make it work for you and for me. So let's start <laughs> with, why are people asking you? What do they want to know? And what would you want to tell them? Oy. <laughs> I just watched my own mind right then. And that's why I'm laughing because right? I'm just like, oh my God. Oh my God. What yeah, do I say? Easy. In the same vein, if you're talking and you're like, ooh, I didn't say that the way I wanted to say it, or can I re-say oh, okay. it, or I don't want to do it. Yeah, we could just retake till the cast I really home. appreciate that. Not oh, everybody yeah, yeah. does this stuff that way. And afterwards, I'm always like, God oh, damn it. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> hey, mom. Yep. So there's too much noise coming through the, that phone when we talk to you, so we're going to just do this phone, okay? We're just going to do what? We're just going to have you play on this phone, okay? So we're, we're going to do it on the other phone? No, we're just going to keep talking like this. Is it on speaker? Uh. uh Mother? What? Do you have to hold the phone to your ear to talk to us? No. So are you on speaker? Yes. So mother, I would like you to take the phone that is in your hand, uh-huh. hold it out in front of you, look at the buttons, and tell me any words that are around any of the buttons. <laughs> Alright, never mind, we're gonna call you back on the other phone. Okay. That was funny. No, it's not funny. It would be a good part on your podcast. Uh-huh. You're going to use it, right? Maybe not the whole three minutes.